You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf podcast. I'm your host, Shane Derby. Robin Bergman joins us for the final time today as we conclude our investigations into the origin stories of some of the first golf courses in the Netherlands. The last two episodes provided listeners with an introduction to the historical context that preceded the introduction of the game of golf in Holland. Conversations with Robin Bergman have primarily been based on his serendipity of early golf book, which was published in 2010. It is now out of print. However, I have included a link in the show notes where you may indeed be able to pick up a used copy should you wish to delve into the story in any further detail. It was interesting to note the shared mercantile, educational and familial interrelationships that existed through time between the Netherlands, Scotland and England. These links have undoubtedly influenced the direction of travel of a diverse range of areas such as migration, colonisation and indeed the development of sporting pursuits to name but a few. Today's conversation is very much focused on modern Dutch golf. Over the course of the next hour or so, we will take a look at some of the important early pioneers that founded the first golf clubs in the Netherlands. While it is true that the original courses in The Hague, Hilversum, Arnhem, Utrecht, Sandport and Nordewijk no longer exist. These early pillars of the game of golf in the Netherlands still endure over 100 years later. Dutch golf is very fortunate that these early clubs and their custodians had the foresight to engage the masterful Harry Colt and his design partners Charles Hugh Allison and John Morrison in designing 10 golf courses throughout the Netherlands from 1927 onwards. I would once again like to extend my gratitude to Robin for the amount of time he extended to me in putting together the last number of episodes, and indeed to all the listeners out there for listening. We do hope you enjoy the conclusion of our conversation. Perhaps I can ask you, Robin, about the early pioneers of early modern golf in the Netherlands. I know you mentioned to me Albrecht del Kort van Krimpen was, was, was kind of key to the whole thing. Yeah. Well, my co-writer of the latest book, uh, uh, he is he, kind of made a biography of him in the, in the book, published it uh, um, the interesting thing that uh, he wasn't really an aristocrat. He, he he was from a Flemish family in the past, and tried to point out that one of the guys in the famous Rembrandt painting of, say, a cloth trader, uh, was portrayed in, in 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 the Rembrandt painting and was an important man. Uh, Delcourt is obviously if you if you see the word uh, Delcourt is is kind of the French uh, Delacour uh, of the court basically means it, uh, and in Dutch it would have been van het Hof. Uh, the word Hof and Cour is is the same. 
and you see the name Sonnethoff, you see. But there's a lot of actually French family names uh, in, in the Netherlands and in Scotland for the for that matter. So like uh, Bruce, Robert the Bruce mm-hmm. and Wallace, they're all French-Dutch names. Uh, there's uh, uh, from uh, Brussel, uh, Brussels, Brussel, that's Bruce. Uh, now you don't spell it with a C-E, but it's the old spelling is B-R-U-S and, and Wallace is Valais. Uh, uh, Valais is is, is the, the southern part of Flanders. Uh, um, so you see a lot of of that. So it's sometimes very hard to trace back family histories. Uh, I'm, I'm saying this because Delcourt from Kimper, he, he basically applied for uh, recognition of his aristocratic roots. So he wanted to belong to the upper crust of aristocracy in the Netherlands. But that was turned down, so it was a bit of a disappointment. But he he he, he was definitely in that circle. And he was uh um, um his father actually purchased a a house near Harlem and that's that's basically where he grew up. And he later moved to uh, and purchased a, 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 an estate near Arnhem. Um, uh, but his 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 mainstay was actually uh, around Harlem, and and he married into an important family. In, in Harlem with roots and connections uh, in the cotton industry. Uh, William the First as king wanted to develop cotton industry in uh, in and around Harlem for uh, you know after the independence of the north 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 had to develop all industry was in the southern Netherlands. So you see a huge development in the 19th century of industry in the northern Netherlands. Well, the Netherlands was actually, you know, merchant shipping, uh, fishery, and, and and agriculture, but uh, heavy industry was all all in the south. So that you see a new development of that in 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 and around Harlem, and so uh, many of those families living in in Harlem and Kennemerland uh, were actually involved in in the new industry. And usually coming from the south, actually their families, but anyway, that that's his background, and and having um, also married into this other family, he he, he uh, um, I'm not sure because I I haven't uh, it would be good actually for you uh, you've you've seen the name Arno Jan eh, my co-writer. Yeah, yeah, I have, yeah. Um, uh, because it depends what you want to know. There, there's a lot to know about him, but he he became interested in agriculture uh, because of uh, um, land ownership uh, in Kimper. That's why he's got the name Kimper added to his name, which is actually around Rotterdam here. 
Um, but that was kind of a, a hobby of his. And he, uh, through family relationships in England, he became interested in, in golf and golf architecture. Golf architecture is is something that moved from, uh, well, as you know, as the people uh, working as groundsmen, uh, caddies, club makers, uh, but basically artisans huh? on the golf courses, it it it, it moved to uh, people interested in in. Uh, in understanding and, and people interested and people who understood uh, agriculture and especially everything about grass. And then from there on, you can make a layout. But before making a layout, you have to know if you're making a bunker there and, and say you want some sand, you know, you have to understand what type of grass you have to have around the bunker so that it does grow or and doesn't grow too high and what type of grass you're using. I'm a member of Royal Dornoch, eh? uh, and in 216, they uh, they celebrated 400 years of golf in Dornoch. That's typical Scots. Uh, it's almost uh, almost commercial, and I'm glad they didn't make T-shirts and things like that. But anyway, there, there there is a document indeed of of Gordon uh, Sutherland or Moore, whatever, uh, describing the links of uh, of Dornoch being the best links in the country and even surpass those of Montrose and St Andrews, uh, and are excellent for playing golf on amongst other things. And um, it was also. Uh, uh, good for 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 the hunting and for uh, horse riding. But, uh, anyway, describing the links of Dornoch, and and so you could see actually in that document of sixteen sixteen uh, that there's a reference to golf being played in Dornoch. So that's why they said four hundred years of golf in Dornoch, which is actually true. And by the way, uh, it shows two things uh, that. Uh, golf was played on the links by royalty. Yeah, because this Gordon, Robert Gordon, he was the Duke of Sutherland, eh? of the, the Earl of Sutherland at the same time. Uh, and he basically, you know, the Duke of Sutherland, he was later promoted or an, to the uh, because of the clearings, the King of England made him a duke, and he was not a very popular duke in Scotland because he was basically supporting uh, the English with the clearings in Scotland. So in, in Dornoch, if you say the Duke of Sutherland, uh, uh, well, that guy, uh, the, 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 the first Duke of Sutherland, uh, they still hate him. <laughs> but anyway, the... the um, this uh, for a royal Dornoch, actually, uh, a friend of my father's was a Scottish golfer here. He was a member of the RAF and uh, an RAF bomber as a youngster, eighteen years old. And because he was so young, he was he was not 
put in the forefront. Uh, so luckily he survived. And he became a KLM pilot after the war. You see a lot of uh, RAF pilots actually coming to Lufthansa, KLM, SAS. Uh, it was a build-up of civilian uh, air uh, uh, industry or airways movement. And so he lived in Holland, and he was a very good golfer. Uh, and I played many times against him in club championships. He was a scratch golfer. I, I never made it below two. I had other things to do also. But the um, um, he phoned me uh, one day. He said, look, I'm 94. And they've diagnosed something in my leg. They, they have to cut it off. And I'm not going to do that. So I'm, I'm stepping out. And I've got a lot of stuff of my grandfather's. And maybe you want it. He says, the family here is not interested. And before I throw it away, why don't you have a look at it? And um, he basically gave me this. I have to be a bit careful. And it's basically an album of newspaper cuttings. Huh? So you see here, a contribution by Jay Sutherland huh? in the London Daily News or something. The beginning is, is trying to, uh, that's basically an index that he didn't use, which wasn't helpful that he didn't use it, but I can't. And so what he did is he, he cut out his column in the Daily News, and he had a, a bi-weekly, so once every two weeks he had a column. And I'm saying that because the grandfather of this friend of mine, Bunny Henderson, was John Sutherland. So he gave he gave this material, and he, this is what he wanted to throw away. And he says, my grandfather, well, yeah, he was, was, he was some kind of secretary of a golf club somewhere in Scotland. Uh, I didn't like him, he said. For grandchildren, he was a bit, you know, was not a nice guy. So that's the information he gave me. So I, I, I looked at it, so, and I phoned it back immediately. I said, well, I've done, I've done a bit of research here. I said, well, your grandfather was the secretary of Royal Dornos, and he was secretary for 53 years until 1941, when he died, some, or 43, something like that. And he basically made Royal Dornos into what it is today. And he started off as a, as a youngster, as secretary of the club at 18 years old, and working together with Tom Morris Sr., who had come over and made a design for the a new 18 holes. but And he would, of course, known Donald Ross. and He educated Donald Ross. Donald Ross was his, his pupil. He, he molded Donald Ross into, and Donald Ross always, and, and Donald Ross actually didn't like, he was a, he was a, a I'd say, a, a, he was an unfriendly, tough bastard. I know exactly what uh, how he would have been. Everybody who wanted to change anything in in his club he, and had did not have his permission, he was in in for big trouble with uh, Sutherland, John Sutherland. You don't touch anything without my permission, especially in his older days. In his younger days, he was a great golfer. I think he reached the semifinals in the in the in the amateur championship. But what I wanted to say is. Uh, 
uh, as a youngster, he made sure that he knew everything about uh, the knowledge of greenkeeping, how to build a course and everything about grass. And, and that's what you see with the early professionals. Like in the Netherlands, we have Henry Burroughs. And, you know, he was basically a, sp a grass specialist. He could play golf at the same time, but it wasn't the other way around. Huh? And with Sutherland also, that's why he was asked, uh, and I, I consider John Sutherland to be actually uh, one of the important golf architects of Northern Scotland of his time, but because he was secretary of the club and he didn't want to be seen as a golf professional and in those days it was very important if you made money in any way out of golf you're a professional even if you carry a bag at 17 years old and you get money for it you're a professional that's why actually the age of 16 years old for caddies was quite important actually we see that in the later years with Francis Weimar and that that whole uh, yeah you know. yeah yeah well the interesting thing is Delcour had written a book a book or actually written a chapter in a book the sports in the Netherlands or something like that and he's got the chapter golf uh -huh. and he refers to the the professional Bobby Jones uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is in uh, 1910 or so. Uh -huh. Whatever, yeah, somewhere there. Actually, in the early time, but, but interesting to see that Bobby Jones had been fighting all his life to make sure that he would not be recognised as a professional. And he actually received a letter in 1957, pretty late, from the USGA, confirming that he was an amateur for for the whole of his life. Uh -huh. He was afraid that they would take away, and you know, re retrospectively. Uh -huh take away his, his Grand Slam. Okay. But anyway, so, but that's, John Sutherland was, for that reason, actually careful not to be considered a a, a, a golf architect and being paid for it. Uh -huh. But he, he, he developed a, a lot of those courses in the North uh, and, you know, bas basically being invited by uh, by the clubs uh, as being a secretary and the problem is, is his name is Sutherland so you see sometimes in the records you know Mr. Sutherland uh, and you know who's Mr. They, they don't realize that it's this Mr. Sutherland mm -hmm. so if you like Brora the 18 holes of Brora is all the work of uh, of Sutherland wow. and uh, later James Braid you know he came there for a day and, you know, and, and this was 20 years later and because of new balls and whatever. Yeah. It, it, the layout had to be changed slightly, but it was only changed slightly. And now uh, Brewer is known as uh, a James Braid course. And it's all Sutherland. And you have a number of courses out there, like uh, the uh, the... The Castle Dun Robin is—I uh, forget the name of the club there—but uh, uh, that's also his. Word. And uh, and he was basically very close friends with the Duchess of Sutherland. Uh, actually, that they and and but you know he was called Sutherland and not Mister Sutherland. And 
So there was, a, you know, he was an ordinary man. He didn't belong. So he was really a good servant to the Duke of Sutherland and the Duchess. She loved him, but actually as a servant. And he understood that. So, he, he, But he was basically uh, employed by the city of Dornoch, and he was paid by the city of Dornoch. And he, he was responsible for the, say, the real estate development of Dornoch. That's where he made a bit of money also, of course. But he was never paid as golf secretary and never paid for his work as, as golf architect. That's why you don't find him. And there are quite a few, actually. Like, if you if you look at... And in England, some of them are recognized, like Fowler uh, for Walton Heath, where uh, Truett uh, made his book out. Um you can say if he is recognized as a golf architect and you can find that he was being paid for it, you know, he's not an amateur. And the rules were in those days, you know, it had to, you went back to uh, basically your birth or your 16th. You're once a professional, always a professional, which is, uh, those rules obviously don't apply anymore. But what, if you read those Causary articles of Sutherland. It's it's surprising how much he knows about the what I call the turf, and therefore the layout. He basically combines two things. You have to be a good golfer, understand the swing, and hit a ball perfectly, uh, so that you can actually appreciate the golf layout and a golf layout can only be done perfectly if you understand how you lay out a golf course and and the upkeep of the ground and understand the grass. So those two things go hand in hand. And nowadays that's, that's almost gone. I, I mean, we basically say, if I know enough about Harry Colt and his, uh, and his work that I'm, I'm, I understand everything about uh, golf course or architecture, it's it's a uh, it's interesting reading his uh, his essays eh, of, of Harry Colt. You've got them probably, eh, or not? You can you can uh, you can get them in reprint if you have his if you if you have one of the original the first publication of his essays. You I think you pay four thousand pounds for it nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> Now, Grant, actually, Grant has a nice reprint. Yeah, I, I have a, I have the reprint. Yeah, not the, not the, not the original. You know, it's it's funny. There's there's a commonality across across obviously Colt's stuff and Mackenzie's stuff, yeah. and I guess various other Golden Age um, architects that do have that that knowledge base to just speak about in terms of in terms of grass, but obviously playing as well. Um, but maybe perhaps talking about Colt, I can drag you back across the North Sea and maybe speak about your beloved, the Kenimer Golf and Country Club. Yeah. And uh, maybe as, 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 a, as, a, as a case study. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Yeah. It's, it must be hard talking to me because I, I, I'm stuck in the past and. No, 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 no. No, no, but I love the Kenimer. So. Oh, no, 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 not at all. You love the Kenimer, so and, and I know that, and 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 we're yeah, still yeah, talking yeah, about sure. the past, but maybe the more recent past. Um, 
I mean, looking at the foundation of the Canamar as as perhaps a case study of, of of how a club was set up back in the in the early days yeah. of modern golf in in the Netherlands. Certainly, in an Irish context, you're talking about the landowner, you know, the local banker, the merchant, the expats. We've already established that in all likelihood, it's uh, it's a game, at least initially, for the moneyed, the wealthy, the merchants. That probably these courses are built in locations that are near to their summer residences or their their, their second houses. Perhaps would that be a fair reflection? Golf started actually in the back garden of the the wealthy aristocrats, and these people lived actually in nice areas, like around The Hague. In Amsterdam, has nothing actually, so that would be Kennemerland, mm-hmm. uh, and on the other side, uh, Hoyland, which is Hilversum, and then you'd have the area around Utrecht and the area around Arnhem. Those were the traditional areas where aristocrats uh, lived. And the difference, uh, you didn't have a lot of aristocrats actually in around Harlem because the merchants of Amsterdam would live there. Merchants are not aristocrats. They make money and aristocrats spend it. And in The Hague, you had a lot of aristocrats with connections with the Dutch East Indies. That was a bit of a, you know, different type of people, colonials. And the landed gentry around Utrecht and Arnhem, those were the traditional aristocrats, Dutch aristocrats, old aristocratic families. But you would see that the pioneers would be more in Harlem and The Hague just because of the type of people. The traditional landed gentry, uh, maybe they had ties with the English, uh, but, you know, they would be followers and not pioneers. So the pioneers are actually uh, in The Hague, uh, the family from Brine, Boreel, and around Harlem, uh, what's his name, our our friend, uh, Delcour van Kemper. Well, you wouldn't lay out nine holes in your back garden. Huh? So usually they would lay out four or five holes. And, you know, long holes, but uh, not that long, huh? but long enough not to be short. So uh, depending on, on, on the size of the estate, and I, I haven't found out where the contact is, but I'm pretty sure it was the, the English family of von Brina, and the English family of Boreel and Daisy van Brina, which is was actually the pioneer of golf in, in a female, by the way. Huh? So she was the daughter of Baron van Brina, who owned the estate of Klingendal, where the Hague started. But she was a, and actually from her life, uh, she was, you know, a feminist and lesbian. But in those days, she didn't talk about it. But I'm pretty sure that she was in that corner and had good friends, in, in, uh, say, in British English aristocracy around London in, also in, in that. Sometimes they, they had to stay for half a year in, in The Hague with Umbrina. 
to make sure that her lesbian activities of this, this English girl, and we're talking about Alice Keppel. Alice Keppel was the the friend of Edward the Seventh, King Edward the Seventh, before that Bertie, her, the Prince of Wales. Uh, Alice Keppel was his favorite. How would you say in English? We say maitresse and uh, mistress. Mistress, yeah. Sorry. And of course, uh, Alice was married to a, a, you know an important officer in the in the British Army, and her daughter of Alice Keppel was also a good friend of Daisy Fabrina. The name Daisy is the, the name of a flower, and the, the name of the flower, by the way, is Marguerite in Dutch, or Marguerite. Just her actual name is Marguerite, from, but was given by her English friends the name Daisy. That's why she's called Daisy from Brina. But anyway, so so the Daisy from Brina was of the family because her father was more into horses, was not interested really in golf, but she wanted to play golf and tennis. You know, early form of, of lawn tennis. And so on the estate of Fambrina, uh, and I'm pretty sure actually this, these are contacts that Bobby Borel had with Thomas Dunn, but I haven't been able to find it because he sent his son, John Duncan Dunn, over to the Netherlands uh, to basically lay out the, the first golf courses in these private estates. Uh, but he was, you know, if you calculate it backwards, he was 17 years old. And he was 18 years old when he, because he's responsible for the layouts and, and uh, of the, uh, and also the building, uh, is, uh, but together with the ground, local groundsmen, and there were enough lo local groundsmen, of course, uh, in these aristocratic families because their estates were so large, so they had a lot of basically groundsmen uh, working for them. John Duncan Dunn was uh, responsible for the layout and design of the, the oldest four golf courses. So the Hague... And then after that, uh, Dorrance in Utrecht, and after that, uh, Rosendals, uh, and in the same year, Hilversum. I actually helped Hilversum uh, understanding that they were not founded in 1910, but in 1895. And they only changed that five years ago. And I said, you have to understand that you're part of the old four golf courses. Uh, so it's a very important part of the heritage of golf in the Netherlands that you have to understand that those four golf courses, the first official nine-hole golf courses, were all laid out by John Duncan Dunn, uh, the son of Thomas Dunn, of the, and, and the, the Thomas Dunn dynasty. Uh, most of them actually, and John Duncan also, he followed, I think, his brother to America, and they actually had a big golfing careers in America which was a you know huge territory for 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 them to pioneer in and and develop their their business there was far more competition of course in england and so if you were if you were flexible enough you you went to america and john duncan dunn was of course a youngster and and you're talking about the period that, uh, of 
So at the end, and you know, no, no, maybe I'm wrong there. I was basically saying the end of the Belle Epoque period uh, and things changed. So the period 1900 to 1910 is basically the turnaround uh, of, of the Belle Epoque where you, you start seeing the decadence and everything pointed towards uh, uh, all these lemmings jumping over the rock and which ended up in uh, the First World War, which they happily uh, let's go, especially the, the British aristocrats uh, as, as the leading force there, which was uh, they never realized how, how dreadful it was. It was all the honor. So they had actually never understood modern warfare and what it meant. But it, it had to be, and it changed society completely. And, and so after, after the war, and in the Netherlands was neutral, and neutral is another way of doing nothing and actually being pro-German. And the Dutch Kaiser was, when he was kicked out there, he lived in Holland, and his son also. And they were fools. Uh, but we shouldn't have allowed them in, actually. But anyway, it doesn't matter. So they were... So they lived actually where the golf course in uh, in Utrecht was at the Dorrance. That's where the German Kaiser lived. Uh-huh. The Kenimer was founded in 1910, and that uh, actually that it's totally different to those old four ones uh, because these were really merchants from Amsterdam living in Kenimerland who had made their money actually in industry and trade in in Amsterdam and internationally. Said okay, okay, we uh, and and you had the richest man in the Netherlands who who owned the estate down at Kardberg, but he and he was the most important colonial tobacco grower merchant, and from that actually the most influential man in the Netherlands. He became he actually he came back to the Netherlands uh, to become minister of colonies uh, just to make sure that his business was protected and that you could keep the modern slave industry going. He introduced the coolie law, and this was actually making slaves out of the Indian Hindus that you brought into uh, Sumatra in 1874. And this was 10 years after abolition of slavery. And, and basically the growers, the plantation owners, uh, and the Dutch plantation owners of they all had these coolies. So they became hugely uh, wealthy from the tobacco, rubber, soils later, uh, and the tin and oil industry. But the laborers were all these coolies. And, 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 the, and the law said, you basically own these guys. Eh? So uh, you had to house them. And you gave them food and schooling or medical care. But they were not allowed to run away. As a coolie owner, you were allowed to punish them. So it's basically uh, slavery. There's a study going on here. You know, I understand it all in, in the time, but you don't have to hide it. Huh? So and just talk about it. And um, the Dutch king is going to publish actually the role of the royal family in slavery that's going to come uh, next year. 
but they're basically focusing on West Africa and America. But, uh, and I, I'm not sure they're going to talk about Indonesia at all. That's the source of ritual because actually the, the, the golden age where we made all our money on uh, on the Dutch East, East Indies, we were bankrupt by the uh, the end of the 18th century. So the wealth actually started in the mid-19th century and uh, and actually the whole of the period up until the Second World War. And so, but that's okay. Yeah. But you, there's a the, coming back to golf in the Netherlands. Actually, that, so you see the beginning of golf. There's four golf clubs that was really the old aristocrats uh, having interrelationships with the English, uh, uh, let's say British, uh, and um, because of their ties in the in, in the Dutch East Indies in the 19th century. The, the, the camera is in that sense different uh, that the, the, the class below that uh, say the, the the wealthy merchants uh, said hey we we also want to play golf and on the estate of Kamer this guy who made all this money on the tobacco business in in uh, Sumatra and East Indies and who, who I explained was the minister of colonies and uh, and considered the wealthiest man in the Netherlands. So Kellermer started on his estate. His estate was basically the dunes, uh, but developing, a, and he didn't want to give the dunes to us. He could have easily, it's, so it's 50 kilometers by five kilometers. So it's a large area. You can build a hundred golf courses on that without seeing each other. But, uh, the Kenema started with a nine-hole course, uh, which Delcour actually laid out on on grassland, and uh, two two of the nine holes were actually just partly on the other side of the road on sand, but the other seven holes were below the road, uh, so below water level, uh, on grassland where normally cows would. Uh, so that wasn't that interest interesting. But the dunes next to the grassland of of of, of the of the Canamar are, you know, it's pretty hilly, and you make your golf courses basically in the valley between the dunes. Not quite as hilly as uh, Royal Hague, but yeah, I get, get what you get what you're getting out. Yeah. yeah, the Royal Hague could never have been no. built in 1910. Uh, that you know you need, but the type of people of the Canamars were were very different. And the daughter of Kramer was married to the secretary of of the Dorrance. Uh -huh. and, and she had been national champion of the Netherlands women's golf. And in, uh, I think somewhere in 1908 or so. But anyway, in, in 1912 or 1910, but... Basically, just after the founding of the Kalamar, yeah, that should be 1910, 1911. So we didn't have a golf federation yet, huh? or they lost golf committee. And the guy who handled, handled all championships uh, um, or coordinating matters between the golf clubs, uh, because you only had four golf clubs, 
uh, was Delcourt van Kempen. And he organized the uh, ladies' championship of 1912. And there were only six participants, uh, maybe less, uh, one of which was uh, Dora Kramer, so the daughter of the the big man of Dan Kardberg, eh, the And Delcourt decided uh, with less than six or less than eight participants, we're not having a championship, you see. And Kramer was furious about that uh, because he was a very... Uh, <laughs> Uh, he wanted his daughter to be the best, you see. Uh, he was a very ambitious man. I was looking for the word. In business, he, you know, he, he wanted always the best and the most. And so, he, you know, that very powerful man. So he hated Delcourt van Kemper for actually uh, cancelling that championship because it was depriving his daughter of a national championship, although he, he himself was not a golfer. He didn't care less about golf, but um, he did care about his daughter. And so his son-in-law, who was the secretary of the Dorrance, was basically commanded by him, you will found a golf federation and kick out Delcourt van Kemper and make sure that he doesn't interfere anymore. And this was just after the, the Kenimer had been founded. That's in 1910. He basically had the four clubs and the Kenimer. And the camera being, you know, this fairly ambitious club with the ambitious uh, Dan Kardberg connection with the Kramer family also being in the board. And uh, Mr. Kramer himself, the old man, immediately being appointed the honorary chairman of the club. So, so those are, and he was, by the way, he was the closest friend of Queen Wilhelmina. Because what he had established as Minister of Colonial Affairs, if a concession was given for the development of, you know, new, a new mine or a new plantation, a new company, also railroad and, and, and shipping around the island. If a concession was given, uh, 10%, I'm, I'm saying 10%, but it's roughly 10%, of shareholding was given to the royal family as part of the concession. And that's the reason for the huge wealth of the royal family. Um, so I'm very eager to know if they're going to come out with that type of information. And that was actually quite clever, because this way, Kema stayed in charge. So he's basically saying, uh, give me that concession and you'll get 10%. Nowadays, you go to prison for it. And so when Delcourt cancelled the national championship for women, uh, came and basically told his son-in-law, you will establish a new golf federation. And the five clubs existing then, including the Canamar, were all invited, and only four participated in the founding of the golf committee, as it's called, uh, and you see, uh, it doesn't have a legal status, so, so it's just a committee of people and because of the founding of the National Olympic Committee, you could only be a member of the National Olympic Committee, and this was just before the war. You had to be uh, you, had to, you had to have a legal status to be a member of the Nederlands Olympisch Comité. So, if you wanted to be a member as a federation of the 
NOC, you had to have legal status. Uh-huh. So that's why the federation was uh, set up. And the members were all the golf clubs. So, but in a way, it's it's the same. But there, it expanded from there on. So, so after the first world war, obviously, you had mentioned the original uh, Kenimer site at Sandport, yeah. I believe. Okay, so, so seven of the holes yeah. are kind of below the the water table, essentially grassland. So somebody obviously decided, okay, this is less than optimal. And I believe they started looking for a new site, which is obviously where you are now. So what can you tell me about that? Uh, the Kenemaland consists of northern Kenemaland and southern Kenemaland. Uh, so uh, some ports where the where the Kenema started off in is in, in near Velze, and that's in the northern Kenemaland. So and Harlem is kind of the border, uh, although Harlem is not in uh, on the coast. But basically, if you draw a line. Everything south of the center of Harlem is southern Kennemerland, and Zandvoort is uh, part of southern South Kennemerland. Indeed, um, say in in the interbellum period, especially in the period of the thirties, plans had been made, and in nineteen twenty eight, he had the big crash, uh, economic crash, Wall Street crash, uh, and the effects of that started coming out in uh, 29, uh, but were really felt in the period 33, 35. So nobody uh, stopped these plans and said, hey, wait a minute, an economic crisis is going to come over us and, and whatever. And from that on, I mean, national socialism and the war, I mean, nobody expected that it was going to go that direction, although a few did. Uh, so they... Um, the fleet is actually part of a very rich family, and that's called the Borski family. Borski are probably Polish Jewish family originally. Made a lot of money actually in trade and, and merchant banking, and were even responsible for saving the, the Dutch Central Bank, which was a private bank in those days, eh? the Netherlands Bank, the Netherlands Bank by putting in 5 million guilders in 1855. 5 million guilders is a lot of money, actually, in those days. But the Borski family, and, and actually the Borski family owned quite a, quite a lot of the estates or built the estates in southern Kennemerland. So everybody thought, and Van der Vliet himself lived there, so you would think that it would be quite easy uh, for him to realize a golf course there. I mean, even if you have a race course built in Zandvoort, the Formula One, that, that's basically South Carolina, our neighbors. That was easily built there so on, on a state of the, of, of the, for the fleet and the Borskis. But, you know, the families kind of didn't agree and other families also. But the Carlos family, who traditionally owned a large portion of the Junes, uh, had to sell actually most of it to uh, to the Amsterdam water uh, uh, because the, the the water sources for Amsterdam been determined to be the Canama dunes. So all the water developed drinking water for Amsterdam came from the dunes of Canamaland. So there was a direct pipeline to Amsterdam. And a little bit of land 
of the was kept by the family Quarles to do a bit of hunting, the 90 hectares or so. So it's basically the three nine whole loops that are the camera. He was a member in, in Sunport and he loved golf and he said, you know, we've got this land, uh, so why don't we actually offer the club that they can move the club to uh, Zandvoort and, and that's it's basically family Quarles who, who did it and the second generation Peter Quarles who I know quite well and I was allowed to say uh, Uncle Pete Peter because his father was Pete and he was Pete so Quarles from Israel and, and basically the, you know, he's long gone but but you are still using his land in Zandvoort, though, which is good news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, well, we bought it. It was just after I joined the committee as a treasurer. And um, and that was, of course, Harry Colt's first course in the Netherlands, yeah? Yeah. And uh, I haven't found... Uh, I know that Dee McCall was secretary, and he, you know, was kind of a John Sutherland secretary, so he understood how you had to do uh, greenkeeping and, and, and uh, how would you call it? Actually, I, I was going to say course management, but that's different. But how, how, how to understand to... Um, Ag agronomy? Yeah, exactly. You have to understand uh, the agricultural side of... Uh, And, and Dima Cole was actually pretty good. And, and I'm not sure where the contacts came from, but uh, he uh, he was obviously, he had been introduced. Maybe it was also commercial contacts of uh, Colt himself, but I haven't found the, say, the first link between the Canamar and D it must have been Dima Cole, or he at least he took over the contacts between. Canamara and Colt, but they were all handled by uh, by Dima Cole, the secretary, and he was basically the right hand man for for Colt in, in getting things done. And uh, Dima Cole basically executed what had to be done. Campaign, of course, would be used as the yeah, and that was quite interesting. Uh, uh, Colt wanted to bring in uh, his own. Uh, Frank Saras probably uh, from yeah. England and uh, actually Copain had, had already been involved in actually uh, uh, developing golf courses you see uh, for families or whatever private grounds and uh, I found one of a family of a good friend of mine that he at, at Copain I found the drawings of a four holes course that he made in the garden of the family of a good friend of mine and that was done actually before the Kenimer and this mm -hmm. is a, a garden or an estate near the Kenimer and the reason for that is is that uh, Mr. Copain was married to an English girl so the son of the big Copain but the Copain who basically handled all the contracts with the uh, course building of, with the clubs he had basically been educated in, in in England and had married an English girl there and had worked actually for the company of 
her father's in, and he was in in landscaping for the larger states. He did landscaping business. So that's how Copain was educated. So so Colt met with him and realized this guy was actually perfect and much better than uh, bringing over a constructor from England. And the way Colt works, he, he would send a, a bill to the club or whatever, 3,000 pounds. Everybody thought that's very cheap, actually, yeah? building, uh, uh, having a course designed by Mr. Colt. But his main contract was with uh, Copain. He would basically get 50% of the, the bill there. And that's something that we didn't see, but we didn't know, of course. But that was the earning model. You basically, you send a, basically uh, what you do is you charge the club for advice and, and the design. And if they say, okay, it's a good idea, you send a bill for it. Or whatever, the, uh, the two, three thousand pounds, and then you uh, sign a contract with Copain, and he signs, uh, Colt signs, because it's his direction. Uh, he's, he's he's basically directs the uh, the plans, and he signs a contract with uh, Copain. So Copain does it actually uh, directed by by Colt and not by the club. So we, the contract is with Colt. Obviously, it's a triangular thing, but through that's why we we don't see how much money Colt made out of the uh, building of the golf courses. Uh, and there were in total nine. If you if you go to the uh, publications in the past, but I've, I've identified nine, of which uh, I think two have disappeared. One last question, Robin. I came across this this gentleman, Philip Truett, comes up again. I came up came up came across a quote from Philip recently that says, "Tradition is not the worship of ashes, but the preservation of the fire." With that quotation in mind, it struck me that you know the Kenimer and the old nine clubs in uh, the Netherlands seem to connect very authentically and meaningfully with their own fires, their history and heritage, and particularly when it comes to the involvement of Colton Company. A deep understanding of this history and heritage seems to pervade your committee structures, where learning appears to be amplified through extended tenure and education. Has it always been the case, and how important do you think that history and heritage is to the future of, of golf, I suppose? Well, the problem about history is that people always talk about history, but actually know little about it, about history itself. So when this cult thing uh, came out, and of course uh, there were a few addicts within the in in, in the Canama who said, you know, cults. Uh, so when I did my serendipity book, I started actually researching uh, cult. Before that, it was just a name, and I knew uh, that he was a. Uh, and in England, you uh, had this a cult tradition, uh, but you have a a, a cult cup. Anyway, so they they decided actually at a certain point of time uh, that the cult clubs and actually your question if there's anything with regards to golf heritage that connects uh, the the old nine as as they're called uh, I don't think so because there's they're basically just get together and, and, and make 
arrangements uh, to play on each other's courses at a lower green fee. So it's mostly economic reasons. There's nothing there that actually demonstrates to the members of the old nine anything about history of golf in the Netherlands or their history or the connecting. So I, I, I would say that the, if anything, golfing heritage is preserved by the clubs that can be considered cult clubs. And I used to be, but, but he died, uh, by a good friend of mine who basically was in charge of the Cult Cup of the Netherlands. And he made sure that, you know, the people getting together and playing against uh, So these were the Cult Clubs, I think. There were six, six or seven. There were a few there who didn't even know that they were Cult Clubs and who were invited in. Take, for example, Toxandria and Breda. That was designed by John Morrison. But you have to understand the definition of, of a cult course, a course designed by Harry Colt himself or his company. And his company consisted of, in the beginning, uh, what's his name, uh, our Scottish friend? Uh, the Dr. Mackenzie, yeah, sorry. And then uh, uh, Hugh Allison and, and, and John Morrison, huh? And Toxombria was built by John Morrison and Amsterdam by Allison. And, and, and the Boston Arsenal Golf Club in The Hague was also done by Allison. So these clubs have to be quite clear when they describe actually their connection with Colt and what Colt was done, is that they should say that. And that's why I corrected The Hague. Because in the history of The Hague, it said that Harry Colt designed and built the golf course of uh, Bosnia, where they're playing now. And that, of course, that was wrong. It was uh, Hugh Allison who did everything. Uh, so you, you should make it clear in your history books. It's, it's a Colt course, uh, but designed by the Colt company and, and by Mr. Hugh Allison. So I think that knowledge is now, because Toxonia said, no, no, we're not a cold course. We're, our, co our course was designed by John Morrison. And I said, yeah, but that's cold. And then the Dommel never realized that they were designed by, by cold. And then Eindhoven, uh, of course they did. And then the, the Amsterdam course of which only six holes are remaining and it's going to disappear. That was done by Charles Allison. And, you know, after opening the course, he said, this is the most, I think this is the best cold course in the Netherlands. <laughs> and it's really the worst. I, I think it was, you know, it was financial crisis all over the world. So I think they took on that thing. And you can, in, in the in the polder land of Amsterdam, uh, in the southeast, and it's underwater most of the time, you could never build a proper golf course what you had to do there is what they've done nowadays. Uh, there are a few golf courses built, uh, like the International and the Dutch, where they actually have the Opens. Uh, uh, they bring in huge amounts of sand. I think it costs them a million euros of sand to start start off. And, and that 
Of course, that should have happened in, in that course in Amsterdam by, by Alison, but the, obviously they didn't have the budget for that or, or the technical means. And Rotterdam, they also had a, a you know, the new course uh, here, Brook Polder, it's close by. I'm not a member actually. Uh, uh, although I, I, a lot of my friends are there, but I always make the. I said I, I, I cannot become a member of a golf club that doesn't have a golf course. Dining club with a golfing problem. Yeah, I would betray my. Uh, yeah, so there, obviously in writing articles or talking about golf history. The cult courses are recognized, but there's not really, I think there's, I think clubs still convene uh, playing for the cult cup. But I've noticed that the people who participate have actually have no idea what, what Harry Colt is about. People say, yeah, it's a cult course. And, uh, and then if you ask that, oh yeah, by the way, and, and, uh, who is Harry Colt and, and what, is he, what does he mean for golf? And the most silly stories come up. So I'm being a bit negative now, but that's better than saying uh, it's, it's great that we have these uh, cold courses in the Netherlands and that you can point out how important it is. There is a friend of mine who's actually a co-member in the European Association of Golf Historians, Christoph Meister. He's actually a very, very good, and probably the only one, good friend of Philip Truitt also. But he's a, he's a very good golf writer, good historian. But he knows everything about cold courses in, uh, in Germany and in Scandinavia. And, by the way, that's not that difficult because there aren't that many. Huh? I have actually agreed with Christoph and with our lady colleague, and she, she's actually Belgian-French and has written a, a, a book about the history of golf in France, especially this club in the south, which was built by Harry Colt. She knows everything about Colt, too. That we would actually write a history book about the Colt golf courses in Europe and I would take care of the Netherlands, and then she would take care of Belgium and France. Maybe Spain, you've got two in Spain, eh? Madrid and Padreña, where Sevilla grew up. And then Christoph would take care of Scandinavia and Germany. And that would be actually an interesting golf book, but our lady golfer, she's actually spending her time on an, another project and Christoph is actually still employed professionally so he doesn't have a lot of time left and I'm not sure how much time and energy I want to put in but I, you know, I've, I've still got it basically my information is there but we can expand and I can use Arnold Jelmat on doing a bit more research on finding in the archives more information about Colts and with regards to the clubs in the Netherlands. But we, we've got most of it, but we can expand on the writing. So that would be a great project. And if we, we don't do it, maybe we should just do it for the Netherlands. But uh, it's not a 
the, the question with these things is, you know, you need funding for it because there's not really a market. Or you could say, let's keep it digital online. At the end of the day, people do want to have a book in their hands. Many thanks for tuning in. As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on Twitter at firmandfastgolf. Please continue to like, subscribe and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing.